0: The following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing November 23, 2018. Who were Cecil Rhodes, Alfred Milner, and Nathan Rothschild, and what roles did they play in orchestrating the First World War? Why did Britain pretend to support and then deliberately undermine ally Russia in its efforts to take over Constantinople? How did elites succeed in concealing the records and facts concerning the start and extension of the Great War? Is the world duplicating the same dynamics that resulted in a major powers conflict a century ago? On this week's Global Research News Hour, as we continue our retrospective coverage of World War I, we discuss and examine the roots of the war to end all wars in the imperial aspirations of British elites. In our first half hour, we hear from Jerry Doherty about his research into the hidden history of World War I and its secret origins in 19th century London. Then we hear from journalist and anti-war activist Rick Rosoff about the developments on the world stage in 2018 and whether the world may once again be on the path to another devastating conflict. On this week's program, Conspiracy and Cover-Up, The Secret Origins of World War One. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 23, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe, Akeem, the homeland of the Métis Nation, and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the central website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News Site. According to the WAPO report, Langley was aware of the assassination plot, but U.S. intelligence visibly did not act. Quote, The United States had also obtained intelligence before Khashoggi's death that indicated he might be in danger. But it wasn't until after he disappeared on October 2nd that U.S. intelligence agencies began searching archives of intercepted communications and discovered material indicating that the Saudi royal family had been seeking to lure Khashoggi back to Riyadh. It should be understood that Saudi Arabia's general intelligence presidency and the CIA not only exchange classified information, Saudi intelligence has consistently acted as a de facto subsidiary of the CIA, going back to the onset of the Soviet-Afghan war in 1979. The CIA has its staff in Riyadh operating out of the U.S. Embassy as well as military intelligence personnel on location, collaborating with their counterparts at Saudi Arabia's GIP. That comes from the article, Who killed Jamal Khashoggi? Did U.S. intelligence have prior knowledge? by Professor Michel Chosodovsky, posted November 22nd. America has bankrupted its economy, its original ideals, and now, after Khashoggi's murder, its sense of decency, its core morality. These are all gone forever. One book that predicted and encapsulated the description of what America was and will be was published in July 2002. It was, in fact, a series of essays written over ten years. Its name, The Decline and Fall of the American Empire, written by the outstandingly unique genius, the late Gore Vidal. That comes from the article, The Decline of America, Trump Protects Saudi Crown Prince MBS, The Pillars of the U.S. Constitution Are Gone, The Views of Gore Vidal, by Richard Galustian, post November 21st. The CIA and White House are at odds over who's responsible for what happened. Langley's damning conclusion, pointing fingers at Mohammed bin Salman, indicates opposition to his becoming Saudi king. Key for the agency is he displaced a Western intelligence favorite, Mohammed bin Nayef, as well as Langley and some of Riyadh's closest allies, believing he's too reckless and untrustworthy to leave the kingdom when his father, King Salman, passes. Clearly he ordered Khashoggi's murder, yet Trump and his regime hardliners refused to lay blame where it belongs, sticking by MBS, despite his reckless actions since becoming crown prince, destabilizing the region more than already. That comes from the article, Continuing Furor Over Khashoggi's Murder, by Stephen Lendman, posted November 21st. NBC News maintains that four sources in U.S. government agencies, probably the FBI and the State Department, told its reporters that the Trump White House is seeking ways to expel Turkish religious leader Fethullah Gulen. But the kicker is that Trump apparently is exploring the extradition as a bribe to shut Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan up about the murder of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi on the orders of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The Saudis are now trying to pin the blame on lower-level operatives whom they have sentenced to death. But Erdogan has been like a bulldog insisting that bin Salman ordered the hit, which is the only logical. NBC says that career officials were absolutely furious when they figured out what was behind the White House requests. That comes from the article. Trump said, considering extradition of Turkish cleric to quiet Erdogan on Khashoggi murder, by Juan Cole, Posted November 17th, originally peering at informed consent. Turkey has given recordings on the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi to Saudi Arabia, the United States, Germany, France and Britain, President Tayyip Erdogan said on Saturday. Turkish sources have said previously that authorities have an audio recording purportedly documenting the murder. Speaking ahead of his departure for France to attend commemorations to mark the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, Erdogan said Saudi Arabia knows the killer of Jamal Khashoggi is among a group of 15 people who arrived in Turkey one day ahead of the October 2nd killing. Khashoggi, a critic of Saudi rulers, was killed inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Saudi Arabia has admitted he was murdered there, but denied suggestions its royal family was involved. That comes from the article... Five countries listened to Khashoggi murder tapes, Erdogan says. Posted November 12th, originally appearing at Times of Malta. On November 20th, U.S. President Donald Trump released a long-awaited official statement on the murder of Saudi opposition journalist Jamal Khashoggi by the Saudi government in a Saudi consulate in the Turkish city of Istanbul on the 2nd of October. The statement came amid reports from CIA-linked sources that it was Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman who had ordered the killing of the journalist and the official stance of the Turkish investigation that the order to kill the journalist had come from the highest level of the Saudi government. Additionally, U S secretary of state, Mike Pompeo held a press briefing saying that Washington's relations with Saudi Arabia won't be affected by the Khashoggi case because quote, this is a long historic commitment and one that is absolutely vital to America's national security, unquote. So, Kill journalists, invade other countries, support Al-Qaeda, and order death penalties for witchcraft. That is all fine, as long as there is some U.S. quote-unquote historic commitment at your back. That comes from the article under the headline, Video, Trump Releases Official Statement on Khashoggi Murder. Points Finger at Iran. Posted November 21st, originally peering at South Front. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This month, November 2018, we mark the centenary of Armistice Day, the official end of World War I. The four-year-long conflict was allegedly triggered by the assassination of Austro-Hungarian heir, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, in Sarajevo. Serbia's failure to reply to Austria-Hungary's ultimatum put them on a war footing, and interlocking alliances with larger powers pulled other powers into the fray, making it a truly world war. One astounding counter-narrative, however, comes from researcher Jerry Doherty. He alleges that World War One had been planned more than two decades previously by a cabal in London, and that the war was principally a drive to extend and secure the dominance of the British Empire. Jerry Doherty is a graduate of Edinburgh University and a retired secondary school teacher. He taught economics and modern studies. He's also a playwright, having written a number of plays with a historical theme. Having been energized by the research undertaken to write his last play, he connected with researcher Jim McGregor and began a 10-year quest to reveal the hidden history of World War I. The two co-authored Hidden History, The Secret Origin of the First World War in 2014, published by Mainstream Publishing, Edinburgh and London, and in 2018, published a sequel, Prolonging the Agony, How the Anglo-American Establishment Deliberately Extended World War One by Three and a Half Years. That was published by Trine Day. Jerry Doherty joined us by phone from his home in Scotland. Could you explain to our listeners how you first came to question the official account?
1: The first fault, really, was the simplicity in the account more or less suggests that a single assassination of a very little-known archduke precipitated a cataclysmic world disaster. It's just so simple. It's a kind of throwaway piece of information which is possibly taught to juniors in school. And yet it has survived in the psyche of millions and millions of learned people as the quick, simple response to... What caused the First World War? When analysed, it really does not stand any test of veracity whatsoever. Indeed, the the action took place, of course it did, but it only erupted into something far more uh, cataclysmic because of all the background preparations which this secret group, we call them the secret elite, had previously. Ensured was in place for any such event which could tip the world into this tragedy, from which and in which Germany would be crushed.
0: Okay, so uh, could you give us an example of, of some of these? Uh, you know, the, the, that level of sophistication that uh, that, that uh, the, the uh, assassination uh, explanation doesn't adequately address.
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to praise the uh, amazing American researcher and historical writer uh, whose whose initial work really uh, exposed everything which was happening in that century, Carol Quigley. And Carol Quigley was um, party to a considerable amount of uh, secret British-American documentation which he was clearly threatened uh, with severe consequences if he made public. He did write the book in which all of this was laid out before observers, and and inside his great work, the uh, Anglo-American Establishment, inside that book he says, look, follow, follow the clues, follow the money, follow all these persons that I have mentioned, and you will see what was really happening. And when uh, Jim McGregor and I began to, to really try to get under the skin of what was going on at the time and who these people, in, largely in, in London initially, where it, it was a fact. So much else had happened and was happening. So much was being orchestrated by a small group of very elite friends, associates, people, who were of uh, high-level either finance or birth or political influence. And these these people were directly responsible for setting all of the uh, parameters within which this horrendous war could take place for the sole purpose, for the main purpose of dictating a world policy which would see... Germany crushed, and the British Empire completely uh, vindicated and drawn strength and strength. And that group also uh, initially had had dreams of reconquering America, as they thought. But essentially, America's economic strength was was, uh, so great that 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 angle was changed so that it it was to encompass and include the, the elite of American uh, banking and financing and political society, the men who acted behind the scenes in, in order to more or less dictate a policy which would have effects across the whole world, and which in time would settle a new world order, which more or less disbanded all of the historic empires across Europe and create a new world order. and mm. um, The the, the power center for this, the the initial um, money man behind it all was Cecil Rhodes uh, from British South Africa, the man who owned the beers and the gold mines, a great associate and friend and ally of of the Rothschilds who were also very heavily involved in South Africa, a man of immense, immense wealth who gathered together a very elite group of people Oxford-based politicians. So he had a huge, he had a huge admiration for uh, Oxford University and, and the thinking of, of the philosophers who had come through that that uh, university process. And he believed, as did uh, those he chose to surround himself with, that there was almost a, a race elite of English men whose, whose influence on the world was so important that this is what the world needs. It needs these men to take control, to direct um, the the whole of the future of of the economic and social and developmental uh, structure in the world, that they should be doing it. It should be up to these people. And initially, and because it has to start somewhere, he used his great wealth and, and in fact, his last will and testament to, to... enable those who followed them to pursue such a policy. And, and naming names, Cecil Rhodes and, and uh, Nathan Rothschild, and a, a most important man, I would argue, in the 20th century, especially in the first half of the 20th century, Alfred Milner, a, a name whom many of your listeners will never have heard of before. But Alfred Milner was central to this this group, he was a man of steel, he called himself uh, uh, an English race patriot, and he was willing to take the steps to create circumstances which, in the end, would result in Germany being crushed. He admitted he admitted to uh, having initiated all of the circumstances which caused the Boer War, so that that, that horrendous possibility... That these bold farmers might, might rebuke and throw out the, the the might of the empire in South Africa was was the first step in actually daring to create a situation where the 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 helm of state, the helm of this this great ship of wealth and determination, would be steered for the next century. Mm. And Arthur Milner, uh, not only helped and, and enabled the world war to begin. But when he when he came home, though he was very unpopular with politicians, that does not stop these people. When he came home, he, he dedicated most of the rest of his life before the First World War to actually um, preparing the British Empire, visiting Canada and, and any of the outposts where where he could influence people to prepare to back the mother country that is Britain, in a war to come, and that would be against Germany. And and he drove that as, as a passion, as a zealot. And in, in the end, it, 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 it absolutely shocked me that I didn't know before I started this research mm. that at the end of the war, from 1917 to 18, 1916 to 18 and beyond, Alfred Milner, unelected, was a member of the inner war cabinet, which was led by David Lloyd George. He here he was, the man who, who admitted to causing the Bull War, <laughs> but by the end of World War One, was actually a leading influence in the inner war cabinet of the British Empire. And you know what, Michael? He's been a brush from history. A man of such incredible dynamic importance. Mm. Airbrushed from history. Only now, only in the 21st century, are a few scholars beginning to to pull back the the, the evidence to 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 further research and to appreciate the incredible power that this man exerted. Because okay. it was it was considered not to be something they wanted uh, people to realise.
0: Jerry, I uh, just uh, to to back up a little bit. Um, you, you did mention uh, the Cecil Rhodes and his, uh, you know, the, the, the wealth, uh, the gold and, and diamond wealth that he had accrued. And so that certainly gave them the means, uh, in, in addition to the you know, what you mentioned, Oxford University is a sort of a major intellectual center. Um, I, at the same time, uh, they're, they're also a, a, a unique. Set of circumstances in terms of the, the the networks that were established, and you you mentioned that with uh, with Al- Alfred Milner, um, that, that enabled these elite, uh, moneyed interests to to go beyond uh, to essentially overtake what the uh, political uh, powers, the the sort of the, what we are used to thinking of as the, the major political powers. Uh, yeah. You know, giving them even more power to those uh, moneyed elites, and, and and taking it to the international level. Um, I, I have to ask, first of all, this uh, this enmity toward Germany. Uh, I, I think you alluded to a, you sort of an, a racialized character here, but I i i just want to probe a little bit more. What was it about Germany that uh, that that would evoke that uh, that need to crush them, as opposed to say? The United States, uh, you know, like why would they find why would those elites not be able to establish, uh, you know, you know, formal ties with with, with Germany, uh, whereas they could with the United States and France and Russia? What was the specific right. threat posed by Germany that uh, that that would cause this decades long uh,
1: plot? Basically, Michael, it was economic. The rise of uh, Germany as a, as a nation state after 1871 brought with it a huge economic revival, and Germany was spreading its goods and its services, its, its exports across the world, and threatening threatening the British economy. And it became very clear at the turn of the century that the economy which was driving forward was that of Germany. It had a, like, a later starting base, and the uh, the British uh, technological revolution. And that was very, very worrying because people in power did not want to see the, the, the empire under any kind of economic threat whatsoever. America at this point was not viewed as uh, uh, a nation which wanted to, to have its own empire. It wasn't viewed in that way. So, uh, and in many ways, of course, there were, there were positive economic links there which were growing. The other thing about Germany, which was a bit problematic, was in fact that the Kaiser was one of Queen Victoria's favourites. She was probably, no, she was undoubtedly uh, the monarch in Europe whom she liked best. She, he he um, was—I can't remember precisely what the relationship was—but I'll I'll, I'll catch up with that in a minute. the Kaiser was an emperor, and she absolutely respected him. Uh, he, uh, he liked her, loved her, in fact, and, and uh, he visited her, And in, in truth. And this will surprise many, many of, uh, of your listeners. He actually was the man in whose hands Queen Victoria died. Um, he, he was with her in the room the Isle of Wight in, in her, her private residence uh, when she died in 1901 uh, and, and that of course was something which was again kept very much from from the people um, and what we see in the propaganda of the time was a realisation that, uh, that Germany and it became personalised on Kaiser Wilhelm uh, that Germany was this threat to the absolute uh, dominance of the British Empire and, and the British economy. And it, it, was, it became focused also on uh, a notion, a, a really false notion, that the Germans had embarked on an, an armed race uh, in shipping, in, in battleships, that, that the Germans were threatening to, to um, master the, the British Navy on the high seas there, of course, when you think of the economic links of the time and the importance of uh, naval passages and uh, all of that like, um, it it became, it got to ridiculous points where uh, governments were threatened unless they kept producing more of these great dreadnoughts and battleships than uh, than Germany was producing. It became a hugely important political issue because it epitomized uh, the fear of the... the, um, The the whole, the the, think of the right word here, Michael. It it epitomised the threat as was perceived, as was uh, absolutely encouraged by the the propagandists in terms of um, what Germany's aims were. Were the the assumption that Germany intended to take over the world economically and, and perhaps. Even even more so, because people who have their own agendas often visit them on, on on others in order to to create a, um, a false impression.
0: Mm. <clears throat> now, uh, there's a, a very important point that uh, you make that uh, uh, of American involvement, and I think probably the one of the most uh, important turning points was the uh, sinking of the Lusitania. Which I believe has been exposed to have been, uh, you know, what I guess you might refer to as a, well. That that is not uh, the, basically it was shot by a a German gunboat, and that uh, this has just been portrayed as a, just a an act of barbarity, among other uh, you know propaganda that's being you know penetrating the the consciousness of of Americans and people around the world about the the barbarity of the. of of, of the Germans, uh, even though you you present a very different picture here. Um, Could you give us a a little bit more background on on that, the American connection?
1: The whole issue with the libertarian was that war had begun and war had to be justified. That every turn America was hugely important. There, there, There were in America a considerable number of people who genuinely did not want to be in the war of anything to do with the war, who considered it quite correctly to be a European war, and took that stance very firmly. There were huge numbers of German-Americans, of Irish-Americans, who deeply, deeply distrusted the the, the British government. Um, it, It was a sorry time in many ways. So every ounce of propaganda that could be focused on America was the um, Lusitania was perhaps the greatest single effort made to draw America into the war uh, as early as 1915 in order to have access to all of the money resources, the, the huge industrial power that, that uh, stemmed from America the armaments, and the munitions, etc. Lusitania was in fact not a simple passenger liner. Uh, she had been Created in the Royal Navy Auxiliary, a considerable amount of money had been spent in in having her uh, decked out with secret capacity to to carry cargo. Uh, And she was, in fact, regularly carrying great deal of munitions from the United States to Britain. uh, And that in itself was hugely, hugely important to the survival of the British Army in its capacity to actually fight in, in Europe. Even more important, it carried Americans. And it was perfectly plain, perfectly obvious to the Germans from, from their own people in the United States, in New York, that in fact munitions were being loaded onto this liner on a regular basis. And they took the very firm step of saying stop this, this must stop, uh, the Lusitania is being, uh, her neutrality and American neutrality is being abused uh, and, and in fact we have to warn you that this book wo- will be sunk if she continues um, performing in the manner in which she did acting more or less as a service ship for, for the British cause uh, this was ignored uh, and in Britain They knew that the German submarines were out looking for the Lusitania and they actually took action to make sure that the Lusitania had no uh, protection whatsoever as she approached uh, the coast of Ireland uh, in in May uh, (laughs) 1915.
0: You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW ninety five point nine FM in Winnipeg, and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Well, I think one very important uh, battle or front was the uh, the attempt to uh, the, the campaign, the Gallipoli campaign, uh, and that, that Russia had an interest in. Uh, basically in invading turkey and or attacking turkey and the brits sort of made it made sure that they wanted to make it look like they were supporting the russian perspective with the russian plan but made sure that it would not succeed what what motivated them to to take that particular course that they did because it was a pretty significant from the standpoint of russian making sure that russia was on side with uh, with brit Britain and France in this in this war.
1: Yeah. In in many ways, I thoroughly understand anyone who rushes into uh, a conclusion that that is impossible. It could not have happened. But let, let let me point to a few facts. Firstly, it was assumed that Russia would sweep in from the east, and there were so many men in the Russian army that they, there would be a tidal wave across. Uh, Coming from the east, which would would uh, sink the Germans and, and the British and French together. Coming from the west, would do likewise, and the war would be over. Initially, of course, the great claim was the war will be over by Christmas. Right? It wasn't. The Russian army was exceptionally weak. Um, although they had men, they didn't have the, the proper munitions. They didn't have uh, a structure which which promoted. Uh, Good judgment and their generals that were all tied to the royal family and to and, and to nobility. Um, and the Russian army suffered massive, massive uh, setbacks in, in the first two years. The Tsar was asking the question uh, to to his uh, the, the British representative in St. Petersburg, which was then the the, the capital. Um, you know, what, what's in it for us? You know, we've, we've lost millions of men. And there's going to be nothing in it for us. The great golden carrot was Constantinople. Now, Constantinople, at the bottom of the Black Sea, was the gateway between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. It would have given Russia what she didn't have, which was, in her whole empire, it would give her her warm water port. She would be able to negotiate and, and uh, trade and... um travel right the way through the world for the first time. The British had no intention from step one, absolutely none of ever allowing this, but they committed themselves to do it in order to make sure that Russia was tied into the war. So, two years on, by uh, 1915-16, Lord, something had to be done to convince the Russians because uh, the, the whole of the that the Western Front had seized up in the mud of Flanders, um, and and this was looking particularly bad. So it was decided that they would revert to a plan which had been discarded about five years before the war uh, took over, which was to send in the great naval ships up the Dardanelles and through the very narrow straits into Constantinople, and the theory was um, the Turks would surrender when the great battleships trained their guns on their capital. Now, the reason why it had been discarded in 1911 was the realization of how easy it is to mine, uh, first of all, the the progress of the great battleships, and also there were great gun batteries up on the Dardanelles, up on the heights, which made made any kind of attack extremely, extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. Yet, the Russians had to be won over. And so a, a full uh, initiative was eventually forced on um, Kitchener, the, the, the General Kitchener who who was uh, obviously in charge of the war office in the British Army, accepted the need to be seen to be doing something. So he appointed one of the least efficient, one of the least experienced of his generals to give the lead on the attack in uh, on the Dardanelles to attack Turkey. I believe it or not, Michael. So ill prepared was this with General Hamilton. He didn't have any prior information. He didn't have the most recent um, the most recent reports from all of that area from British agents. He didn't even have maps that were sufficiently accurate. They, they were they were actually scouring the markets of Cairo in Egypt, to try and get as up-to-date uh, maps as they could find before the invasion took place. It is so ridiculous that, that it's embarrassing. Mm. There, of course, the Turks could see this whole invasion coming. They were well prepared for it. It, it led to an enormous loss of life, much of which was pitiless in it. Uh, the, these young men who were thrown onto the beaches under these guns, many of them were were. were were uh, had insufficient water, uh, many of them died through uh, hydration, dehydration uh, and, and other illnesses. It was a shocking affair. But when the Russian generals saw this happening, they came to the conclusion that yes, yes, they're doing something, they're going to take Constantinople for us. It reassured the Russians and that was his point.
0: Mm. Now I, I wanted to move on to the um, the other uh, aspect of this. The, the equally interesting is the that you call it the cover up. You mentioned the uh, the researcher Carol Quigley. Uh, I know that like uh, he's got two books: the Anglo-American Establishment and Tragedy and Hope: The History of the uh, World. Two
1: great books, yeah.
0: And uh, they're not easy to find.
1: Let's start with Carol Quigley because he was a very brave man. He was part of the American establishment, and uh, he, he was a well-liked and, and loved professor. In, in fact, Bill Clinton referred to him in his acceptance speech when he was nominated uh, by the Democratic Party. And Carol Quigley realized that what he had stumbled upon, what he had been given access to see, what he eventually was writing about was so sensitive that he feared that his life was in danger and he actually said so on uh, a radio interview that he gave in 1974, uh, where he, he explained how he had come by um, the information, um, and, and he became quite animated in, in this uh, uh, expose and, and, and warned uh, the, the, the radio host to be very careful Uh, What was being said, because and and what what he actually used, uh, because there were powers around in the uh, the 1970s which would, uh, according to him, which would uh, endanger uh, their lives. What what he discovered was that um, in the spring of 1966, the publishers Macmillan were planning to to uh, issue Tragedy and Hope and. in the summer of 1966, Macmillan uh, was bought by... The, the company was bought by a holding company and stopped all advertising of, of Quigley's book. Uh, tragedy and Hope got a quarter-page advert in the New York Times, and that was all. Uh, in fact, everything about it was was uh, cut back. It was supposed to go out and reprint in 1968. Um, Collier Books... Uh, bought out the, the last half of, of, of uh, the, the book, but never told them, and it was allowed to go out of print, and they promised him that something would be done, that it was just temporarily out of stock. And then he discovered that they weren't going to print it at all, that his contacts told him that uh, he couldn't get the plates, uh, the plates had been damaged, uh, and in fact there was no way that the book would uh, see light of day again. I mean, this is quite. This is a direct, direct attempt to just to simply stop the book being published, yeah. um, and, and that that interference in, in you know in the right of people to to know and, and to speak their minds it runs against the American Constitution. But but that so be that 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 was one of the just one of the things which was of great importance to actually keeping this out of uh, people's awareness. So could that the, the traditional history could could continue to be taught.
0: Could you talk about the uh, the, the efforts to round to, to go to the different countries and uh, and round up all those uh, incriminating documents and, and either yeah. seal them off from public view or or, or destroy them yeah. outright?
1: Yeah, yeah. Perhaps the the greatest single theft of of knowledge and information was that which was perpetrated at the end of the First World War through and by Herbert Hoover, who had been the man uh, responsible in leading the the so-called Belgian Relief Fund, or American Relief in Belgium. What Hoover and his uh, associates did was they began to collect and collate hundreds of thousands of pieces of evidence, anything to do with uh, the war, especially those days uh, before the war, uh, whole screeds of, of German official papers disappeared, of, of Russian correspondents disappeared. Uh, and and the, the story given about was that what Hoover was doing and his associates, says, they were collecting all of the evidence so that history wouldn't lose it, and they were sending it back to America, and in fact it was destined to go to Stanford University in California, where it would all be safely uh, collated and it would be uh, safeguarded for the world. In fact, what was happening was that, I mean, we're talking about so much, so much stock that it it, it filled ballasts in, in cargo ships going back from Europe to America, I mean, you're talking about an enormous mountain of evidence which was taken away. Anything at all to do with the workings of the um, so called Belgian Relief Fund, anything to do with those who had uh, been in correspondence uh, in the days before the war, anything which would have pointed to a different storyline that they wanted to promulgate through the Treaty of Versailles, and that was basically that it was all Germany's fault. All of this was scooped out of Europe and taken away. So, I mean, it's unique. It's unique in in history that a deliberate effort was taken to absolutely clear out volumes and volumes of evidence, of uh, goodness knows what, because we've never really been given uh, sight of it, and uh, the, the promise was that it would probably uh, take about two years to get all this sifted through, well, it didn't take anything, uh, it's, still, it's still not fully, we still don't know the full extent of what was taken, or by whom, and how it was treated.
0: Now, one other thing that I, I think seems very counterintuitive is the case of Russia, and in their participation in in, in the cover up, because in the time, I mean, we had there there was an anti war movement in Russia that uh, that, that would see you would think that the when the Bolsheviks took over, like what interest do they have in uh, supporting the uh, the cover up of of the uh, the truth about World War One? Uh, c- c- could you outline that for us?
1: Yeah. Um have to remember the absolute confusion of that time. The uh, the, the stepping down the abdication of the Tsar and and then the the various governments which eventually ended up with uh, Lenin and Trotsky whose whole arrival back in Russia was a feature of um, sublime cleverness by powers that be throughout Europe to be able to get these two men in particular who would foment revolution into the top spots was was almost unprecedented itself as well. But the truth of the matter was that Russia, Lenin in particular, had a problem with armaments, had a problem with uh, finances, had a problem with being able to ensure that they could win the internal civil war in Russia. So therefore they needed money. And money was more important than virtually anything else. They needed to exchange their money for ammunition, for guns, for, for, for the wages of war. And this they did. Uh, they made it very easy for uh, information to be collected from Russia. They weren't interested particularly in such information. They were more interested in the price it could get them in order to finance uh, their, their own civil war. So there was a period of, of, in Russian history of that time when no one knew for sure who was about to win this horrendous struggle that was going on. And in the midst of it, um, a very interesting group like uh, American Red Cross had uh, visited uh, the, the, the Russian government, the, the new Russian government, and the people who were on that Red Cross uh, group were, were financiers from the the Morgan, the the Rockefeller, uh, the the Wall Street powers, um, which is a strange group to to have as representatives of the American Red Cross, so we can safely assume that something other than uh, the good of uh, the injured and and the ill was taking place. So inside that confusion, and inside that timescale, a great deal of uh, of the archives... From Russia, were also uh, easily sifted out. So the, it was said by, by Hoover uh, when he was asked how, how easy it had been uh, to, to, to get hold of all of the vast, the vast estates of records that, that he had uh, collected and uh, was taking to the United States. Uh, it is very easy uh, to get starving people to say yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry Docherty, uh, we're kind of running to the end, close to the end of our time, but I, I wanted to make sure you you had a chance to to speak a little bit to the uh, the combination of carrots and sticks that uh, conspire to prevent honest researchers from you revealing some of these inconvenient truths about World War One and uh, the, the way history is unra- unraveled since, and and maybe some of the ways that you know. Research, you know, researchers are uh, co-opted into continuing this cover-up.
1: Yeah, I think that the university system has set up over the last century has enabled those in charge of the um, the courses and the departments in and, and the greatest universities in, in the land to dictate what is and what is not accepted as a historical fact, so that um, when when uh, Students are, are writing essays, they are given, they're given the accepted uh, reviews and, and evidence to, to use in their, in, in their work. When lecturers uh, come forward, they, they, they are using orthodox uh, explanations, and anyone who, who steps out of line, who, who goes towards uh, unacceptable history in the eyes of these people, well, they'll probably have their tenures cut, possibly forever, uh, and when you've got wife, family, house mortgage, and all the trappings, it it really takes more than courage to, to actually stand up and say, well, there's another side to this, can I ask you to look at, or tell the students that they should perhaps be looking at other sources, which, um, especially as the 20th century developed, became more and more um, available, both online, through research, and through governments deciding that 50, 80, 100 years uh, was long enough to keep some of these documents out of out of circulation and well, that has had a, a lasting effect on, on what we accept as orthodox history
0: well jerry Doherty, I, I wish he had more time to speak because I, I think i do see some parallels with what uh, some of us uh, independent journalists have to go through uh, you know we get labeled conspiracy theorists or fake news or whatever Yeah. all in the same yeah. that same spirit of, of trying to conceal uh, you know so the the authentic record Jerry Doherty, thank you so much for your time.
1: My pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Researcher
0: Jerry Doherty is the co-author of two books on World War I and its origins. You can find more of his writings at the site, firstworldwarhiddenhistory.wordpress.com. It's been 100 years after the end of World War I, NATO forces have been encroaching on Russia's borders since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Conflict has increased since 9-11. President Trump has pulled the U.S. out of the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, months after Russia announced a new generation of arsenals, including hypersonic missiles and nuclear payloads, and with the capability of overcoming any and all conventional defenses. There are international tensions amid threats of sanctions, trade disputes, and a precarious global economy. On the centenary of Armistice Day, has anything been learned that might spare the world another major conflict, or is World War III right around the corner? Joining us by phone is Rick Rosoff. He's a journalist, anti-war activist, and manages the Stop NATO listserv. Thanks for joining us, Rick.
2: Thank you for having me, Michael.
0: Rick, on November 11th of this year, world leaders gathered in Paris to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the War to End All Wars, your quick take on the Paris Armistice Day event, uh, what signals, if any, do we need to pick up on from what was said and done at that meeting?
2: There are procedural uh, issues, issues of precedence, if you will, that uh, I think you know, the, the mainstream media has been very good at following up on. I think an overall assessment of that gathering uh, decisively, you know, historically decisive event that it was, is that it was covered as little as it was. Uh, that uh, the world press and uh, particularly political commentators globally have said uh, said as little as they did about it, and what we saw was simply a triumphalist, self-congratulatory orgy of, uh, you know, the, the winning um, side, if you will, and, and uh, now their reconciled uh, partners in, in countries like Germany, uh, you know, celebrating their great victory for democracy. It was, as you re- recall, at the time touted as uh, by Woodrow Wilson here in the United States as um, you know, a war to foster democracy globally, uh, as it was a war to end all wars. in both cases that uh, those claims are flagrantly and, and patently uh, belied uh, by the events of the time and, and thereafter. As a matter of fact, far from fostering democracy in Europe, uh, several countries that had embarked on a democratic parliamentary system in Europe, uh, you know, shortly thereafter uh, saw them go by the wayside. I'm thinking of Russia, Italy, Germany, and other countries. So it hardly, you know, the war hardly um, was was meant to um, to introduce and promote democracy. Nor, nor as we sadly know, uh, did it affect its uh, alleged claim of ending further wars. It, didn't, if anything, uh, exacerbated the, the situation in Europe so that World War II was inevitable.
0: Hmm. Well, what is your take on the uh, announcement, the earlier announcement about? Uh, uh, developing a European army to protect against China, Russia, and even the U.S. And, and what would that mean for NATO?
2: I mean, uh, this statement could only have uh, emanated from the mouth of uh,
1: President Macron of France, uh,
2: you know, bank uh, stooge uh, that he is. Uh, that's an, an absolutely inane comment, of course. How a European army would defend itself against China is, is mind boggling. Uh, against the United States is simply inane. Uh, against Russia is quite more to the point. Uh, but we have to keep in mind that since 1999, that is when, uh, when the North Atlantic Treaty Organization became for the first time, uh, at least, uh, on, on a major scale involved in the war making business, that is the 78-day air war against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, uh, they held their 50th anniversary jubilee, uh, um, a meeting in in Washington, D.C., you know, to celebrate their great victory in NATO expansion, war against an unoffending country outside its area of responsibility. But they also uh, uh, exposed or unveiled a program called Berlin Plus. I invite your listeners to look it up. It's a program uh, between the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, European Union, for joint military collaboration. This is what Macron is really speaking about. Uh, So we have no, uh, you know, uh, doubts about these sorts of things. He's talking about an adjunct to NATO under EU auspices, something comparable to the European Union uh, naval blockade in the Persian Gulf and off the the Horn of Africa, or more particularly the European Union battle groups. So that what you see is that uh, not only military ordnance bases, but commanders are uh, interchangeable between NATO and the European Union. That's what he's talking about. And clearly of the three countries he mentioned, let us assume – that China and the United States certainly are simply camouflage and disguise the, the otherwise glaring fact that he's talking about a, a continental army to be deployed against Russia.
0: Hmm. Well, given the state of international tension currently, what potential flashpoint or development are you most focused on lately that uh, you feel is most likely to deliberately or accidentally trigger a major powers conflict?
2: That's a hard choice to make, isn't it, Michael? I mean, unfortunately, there seems to be an embarrassment of riches in that respect. Uh, I would say if we're talking about the situation in Europe, continental Europe, uh, it's clearly it's going to be between the U.S. and its NATO allies uh, to the west and Russia to the east. There is no other uh, potential challenger. Uh, we have to recollect just a few weeks ago NATO held, uh, with active U.S. involvement, of course, held the largest war games uh, since the uh, Cold War. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the um, dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, uh, in Norway, right off the Russian coast, of course, uh, 50,000 troops, all sorts of warplanes, war, planes, war uh, warships, and so forth. Uh, the implication is pretty obvious as to who they were preparing to de- defend themselves against. So that flashpoints the Baltic Sea, is, is potentially one uh Crimea should the west uh you know insert itself there and try to exacerbate uh, some sort of uh, international conflict around that Ukraine surely uh Black Sea there are any number the Caucasus there are any number of places where the US and its allies might provoke a conflict with Russia so it's it's hard to say mm-hmm. uh some of this could be a matter of uh, accident we were talking about World War 1 of course uh, it was a uh, uh gamble Pinch- uh, Shot the Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo, and the war began. Which is not to say the war wasn't planned by all the major would-be belligerents or future belligerents. But that was the occasion. That was the spark that uh, set it off. And it could be any number of uh, those areas I mentioned. Uh, Perhaps some we haven't even considered. But the fact is, once uh, the the plans are in place, uh, what happens is actually more pretext uh, than than uh, precipitant. I see. Well,
0: you know, things do seem to be looking pretty grim right now. I mean, economic and political forces seem to be driving us to more military violence. It, are, are there any past triumphs that, because uh, I, I want to try to end on a positive note, are there any past triumphs that convinces you that the world can turn back from the brink, or are we confronting the inevitable?
2: Well, the, uh, you raise a fascinating point. Uh, we know about the crises so that... Uh, that flare up. We don't know the, uh, so much about those that are prevented, uh, almost by definition. Uh, so who knows, you know, how many times we've been on the brink of something fairly catastrophic and wiser heads prevailed and, and somebody pulled us back. The Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis obviously comes to mind. Uh, there could be others, but uh, we're deal- We're sitting on a powder keg, quite literally. And uh, the, the concern right now is, is not so much that we try to, uh, you know, preempt any particular conflict from arising or crisis from arising as uh, the need for, you know, first of all, we're talking about a world right now where the U.S. has been, as you indicated in your lead in comments, has been at war since at least uh, 2011 or 2001, I would make it 1999. Uh, so for 20 years, you know, a full generation of Americans have not known peace, the, and, and the world has not known peace. And the fact that we don't have a vibrant, uh, thriving, effectal, effective uh, peace movement at all uh, in Canada, or the United States, and Europe, and worldwide is, is I, I would say, the first thing that needs to be addressed. We need to make peace the uh, preeminent issue in the world. Every other issue, that uh, every other initiative that doesn't include a peace or a disarmament, demilitarization uh, component. Uh, is being uh, negligent. It's responsibility is for addressing any other issue on the planet. That's the overriding one. Look, Michel Chasudovsky has an article today on Global Research
1: where he uh, talks about
2: the, the the fatalities. He estimates, I think, 14 million in World War One, forty million 40 million in World War Two. I think there's probably low-end figures in both cases. And then dares to posit uh, what would the casualties of World War Three be it, they would be incalculable. Mm-hmm. We're talking in the hundreds of millions, surely. And uh, you know, t- with something that um, horrifying, uh, that, that the whole world is not united in uh, not only opposing, a, you know, the, uh, given war itself, a hypothetical war, but uh, not not, but in ensuring that that possibility doesn't exist, cannot exist. That's what I. Would, that's my plea. Hmm.
0: Well, I guess we've got our work out work cut out for us. Rick Rozoff, thank you so much for sharing your views with our listeners.
2: Yeah, thank you, Michael.
0: We've been speaking with Rick Rosoff, a journalist, anti-war activist, and manager of the Stop NATO Listserv. He joined us from Chicago. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.